Our text for this Lord's Day comes from Revelation chapter 11, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Now hear God's holy word. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses that they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we thank you for the way that it weighs us out, that it measures us. It is our yardstick. It is our plumb line. It is our T-square. It is that which uh, states clearly your standards and how we are to measure our lives. And so just as your servant John took up a measuring rod to measure the holy city and to measure the temple and to measure the people that are in it, so may we be measured out by your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways that I paid my way through school as a young adult, as a young man, one of the ways I got through was by working at a small town building supply and lumber yard whose main customers were general contractors and carpenters. And at first, when I first took the job, I was intimidated because I was going to be serving these skilled professionals when I didn't grow up around construction. I barely knew what end of a hammer to hold. I, I didn't grow up in this world, and I didn't know the first thing about what they did in their jobs. And yet here I am to serve them, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm at a big disadvantage. I, I, don't, I don't have the knowledge to help them. But as it turned out, the professionals, the general contractors, the carpenters, were the easiest customers to serve. They knew exactly what they needed in what quantities. They would come in and say, I need... 42 by 4 by 8s, 3 2 by 6s, uh, 20 sheets of 3 quarter inch OSB, and a bag of 16 penny nails. And they would, you know, just know exactly what they wanted. You load it up in the trailer, you deliver it to them, and it was good, and it was fine. They weren't difficult. The most difficult customer to serve was the guy who waddled in on a Saturday morning and said, eh, I need a board. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> what kind of board do you need, sir? Well, you know, kind of like a plank. Well, okay, <laughs> that, that helps. Uh, thank you. Let me get right on that. Uh, this guy who had a real nebulous idea of what he was trying to accomplish, just an approximation of a plan, no measurements. He didn't have any measurements. And, and this is a prototype of a person who came in every Saturday morning. It was not always the same guy. But you ask him, what, what do you need? And he said, well, it's about yay long. Okay, yay long. About, you know, about that wide. And you had to figure out what in the world he was looking for. The best thing you could sell him was a tape measure so he could go home and figure out exactly what it was that, that he needed. Because without precise measurements, it's impossible to build or to repair or to bring order. The act of measuring is pretty foundational. It's pretty fundamental. The act of measuring is a key component of man's dominion in the world. God gave man days, morning and evening, but we have further divided the day into hours and minutes and seconds and nanoseconds. And this is helpful. This is, this is a helpful way of taking dominion over time in order to make right angles and build things that are square and build things that are sturdy. Uh, we must have standards of measurement which impose order on the raw materials of creation. Trees grow 
curvy and crooked and we cut them down and we make rectangular boards with corners and edges and we build things out of them. And when God tells man to build things, he gives them specific uh, uh, measurements. He, He gave Noah specific measurements for the ark and Moses had specific measurements for the tabernacle. And this is all instructional. When God gives measurements, it shows that God has a building code. God has a plan. He has a blueprint, not only for structures, but for life. Your life is a house that will either stand or fall depending on its foundation, depending on whether it's built according to the blueprint that God has provided or not. So this measurement and this house building metaphor is all over scripture, and we encounter it today again in Revelation. Last week, John ate the book. He ate the word that the mighty angel gave him. And then now this angel, this mighty angel who we saw is most obviously, most evidently Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus who gives him the word and then gives him a measuring rod and tells him to make some measurements. Here's here's a yardstick. I've got some things for you to measure. Well, before we can even get into this section today and understand what's happening, we have to go back to Ezekiel and see that this has already happened. This same thing um, we've already seen in in Scripture. I I said last week, I kind of joked that this is where we need to stop and get all of Ezekiel down and get all of Daniel down. We can't do that, but I am going to spend just a few minutes in Ezekiel to help you understand what you're reading and what you're seeing today in Revelation. So the prophet Ezekiel, he lived in the last days of the old kingdom of Judah. He lived around 597 BC as God delivered his people of Judah into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was over Babylon. He had given his people in Judah many opportunities to repent, many opportunities to put away their rebellion and their idols. But after a while, time was up. And so he delivers them into Babylon for safekeeping for 70 years until he determines to bring them back out again and allow them to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and and rebuild the temple. Uh, 120 years before this, God had uh, uh, delivered the northern kingdom of Israel into Assyria. They were assimilated into Assyria and they they didn't come back. But the southern kingdom is mercifully preserved in Babylon and they are brought back out 70 years later. So as this remnant of Judah, as the exiles are being uh, uh, shipped off to Babylon, God sends Ezekiel to be his prophet and his priest to the people. And at the beginning of Ezekiel's book, he gets a window into heaven and he sees God's chariot captained by the cherubim going up out of the temple and over the river Chebar into captivity, into exile with, with, the, uh, with the people of, of Judah. God shares the exile of his people, just as Jesus shares the shame and Jesus himself is exiled outside of the city. This is God's character. This is his nature. He goes with his people into shame and into exile. So Yahweh's not sending them there to suffer alone. His presence is going with them and he ordains various servants to lead them and minister to them while they're in Babylon and through all of the transitions and all of the kingdoms and and situations to come. The the empires and rulers are going to change. So we know their names. He puts Daniel in a position of power, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, He raises up Nehemiah and Ezra later on to serve his people. He'll later lift up a Jewish girl named Esther to be queen over the whole entire Persian empire. And at the beginning, Ezekiel is another one of these who's ordained as a minister to prophet, uh, to, to, to prophesy 
to the exiles to call them to be faithful and to call them to repent even in their exile. So that's the context of the book of Ezekiel. So in the first chapters of the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel describes his vision after the, after the chariot that goes up and over into Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel sees a man from heaven clothed in fire, clothed in a cloud, and clothed in a rainbow, who appears and gives him a book and tells him to eat it. It's sweet at first, but later it becomes bitter. This heavenly man gives Ezekiel the word of God to communicate to the exiles. And one of the central messages, especially in the early chapters of Ezekiel, is that the people of the covenant, the people of Judah, have been judged and they continue to struggle because they've lost all power of discernment. They lack judgment. They can't tell right from wrong, up from down, left from right, holy from profane. I'm just going to read one verse from Ezekiel 22. Here's his message to them. The priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. They have trampled the holy things. They have lacked judgment in all of the areas where they were supposed to, uh, supposed to exercise discernment. They lack discernment. So when God's people, and especially when God's priests, lack any sense of discernment and pollute God's sanctuary. They pollute the worship of God. They pollute their houses and pollute their lives with every manner of idolatry. And they end up not only corrupting themselves, but Yahweh takes it personally. He says, I am profaned. My name is carried in vain. My name and my glory and my presence and my law are treated as light things, not as heavy things, not as weighty things. You're, you're treating me as temporal and as fleeting and as empty as the dust. You're, you're, you're treating me like refuse. You're treating me like garbage. And you're not treating me as if the things that I say and who I am are eternal and weighty and glorious. So when we lack discernment, when we lack wisdom and clarity, we pollute everything. And that's, that's the message of um, the beginning chapters of Ezekiel. So God takes Ezekiel by vision up into a high mountain. And if you're following along, flip over to chapter 40 of Ezekiel. And we'll get back to Revelation in just a second. But um, the, God takes Ezekiel up into a high mountain and shows him the holy city and shows him the temple. So in uh, Ezekiel 40, verse 2, in the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand and he stood in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand breadth. And he measured the width of the wall structure, one rod and the height, one rod. And, and then for uh, the, the next um, uh, chapters 40, 41, 42, and part of 43, 
The angel measures every feature of the temple, focusing especially on the gates and on the doors and on the guard posts. Anytime God's sanctuary is in view, this is, this is important. Anytime God's sanctuary is described in the Old Testament, the subject of guardianship and boundaries and protection comes up. In the wilderness, God's sanctuary sat in the middle of a camp protected by Levites with spears. All of Israel was arrayed like an army around the sanctuary. The high priest himself is armored with a breastplate and a helmet, and he has a sword. You know, when you get over to uh, Ephesians chapter six and you read about the whole armor of God, Paul is not describing a Roman soldier. That's the armor of the high priest. That's the, that's the high priestly suit of armor that he's describing. And the, and the high priest is armed and he has this armament and he has this, this shielding. In, in uh, 2 Kings 11, there's a lovely story where Je Jehoiada the priest overthrows wicked, Baal-worshipping queen Athaliah. And Jehoiada arms the men who help overthrow her. He arms them with shields and spears from the temple. What are shields and spears doing in the temple? Well, they're there to protect God's sanctuary. Not just anybody can wander into the sanctuary. Not just anybody can come in there. There are zones of holiness that must be guarded. And so the, the, the temple is guarded and the temple has an armory. And there are, th there are weapons in there because you must protect the holy place. And so now it comes as no surprise in the heavenly temple, Ezekiel sees gates and doors and stations for guards. The word door comes up 24 times in these four chapters. The word gate comes up 75 times in just these four chapters, which tells me, and which should tell all of us, holy things, sanctuaries, they must be separated. They must be protected. They must be guarded. That was Adam's failure, wasn't it? That he didn't guard the holy sanctuary of the garden that, that God gave him. And then at the end of this description, the man who gave Ezekiel the book speaks again over there in Ezekiel 43, verse 6. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places." When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. So he's calling, you got to make separations. You got to make distinctions. Don't bring your corruptions right up to the walls of my house like you have been doing. Keep that far from me. Keep it separate. And then he says in verse 10, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they're ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances and all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design 
and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. The angel and the man say to Ezekiel, write all this down, all the dimensions, all the details of the temple and describe this to Israel so that they will be ashamed of their sin and they will keep its design. Now this might seem real incongruent. How could a schematic, how could a blueprint how could detailed descriptions of walls and corners and doors and gates, how could this lead the people to repentance and obedience? You might say, I don't think I've ever looked at a blueprint and been convicted of my sins. I don't, I don't think I've ever looked at instructions or, or, a, or a site plan and thought, boy, I need to repent. So how does that work? How does, how does this lead them to repentance? Well, you see, if they understood what the temple was, and what it stood for, and all that they had lost in their exile, their distance from God and from his holiness and, and from his fellowship now, they would see where they had failed and, and, and in what ways they had not been faithful gatekeepers and boundary centers. Well, they, they, uh, they, uh, they had Ezekiel to explain this all to them and what it meant. God has pres uh, prescribed a, a precise order, a blueprint for his temple, which is a blueprint for his people. His people have always been first and foremost his temple. His, he tabernacles among his people. He's enthroned on their praises. So the blueprint, the precise measurements are for the people, not simply for the architecture. And the people have built their houses on other foundations. They've used other measuring sticks. Their houses therefore have collapsed and great is their fall. Now with this background and with Ezekiel in the back of this, we get over to Revelation and if we've studied Ezekiel, we see this and we say, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. This, this has come up before. Just as Ezekiel saw a man clothed in fire, cloud, and rainbow, just as that man descended to give him a book to eat that started off sweet and then became bitter, so did John in Revelation. And just as Ezekiel watched an an angel measure off the heavenly temple, so now John is told to measure off the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Do you see the parallels? Just as, just as this all happened for Ezekiel at the end of the old world of his Jerusalem, of his temple, so now John is being told to do the same thing. Except there's a difference. In Ezekiel, the angel is doing the measuring. In Revelation, John is told to do the measuring. Uh, this is something we studied at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. I'll just allude to it now, remind you of it, because I think it's going to come up again before we're done with this study. Uh, one of the themes here, one of the things that we're seeing going on is the elevation of man to positions and duties that angels formerly held. See, uh, the angel measured in Ezekiel, John measures now, because under the old covenant, angels were tutors and advisors to men. In Galatians, Paul says the law was appointed through angels. And in, and in Hebrews, we read that formerly angels were ministering spirits who communicated the word, but now God has spoken to us through his own son and elevated and glorified him. There's this new covenant transition between angels having dominion over the world and now 
men are elevated to that position uh, over the world in, in a new way. Uh, so all the thrones of the 24 elders that we saw earlier in Revelation, those are all occupied by angels when we first see them. But now after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, after Jesus leads captivity captive, as we sang this morning, now heaven is populated by men and greater dominion over the earth passes from the angels to men in the new covenant. So that's why now John, it's his duty. He is the one who's measuring, not the angel. John is measuring. Ezekiel watched an angel measure. Now John is commanded to measure as he is being elevated over uh, creation and the church as man is elevated over it. Now with all that in the background, uh, let's read just these first three verses. I joked last week about saying, you know, I, I, we probably should just take about two verses a week. And I, I was joking, but I'm not today. We're just taking these couple verses because there's, I don't want to skim over this. There's some important data and important instruction here. So with Ezekiel in the background, now listen again to Revelation 11. Then I, this is John, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So he uh, says to John, measure the temple. The temple, measure it and set it apart. But the courtyard is left outside. Don't measure the courtyard and let it be trampled for 42 months. There's a zone that is preserved and a zone that is left out. There are those who are, who are marked and sealed and separated and set apart, and there are those who are not. This is parallel to the sealing of the saints back in the sixth seal. We're in the sixth trumpet, and again, we have a, have a separation, a marking, a setting apart. And this is John symbolically and prophetically showing the marking out of God's church, of his holy people, of his heritage, of his covenant people, marking them out and preserving them through the persecution and the horror and the terrors and the judgment to come. Um, and, and those who are left outside are going to be trampled. And, and here's the irony is that Israel, old Israel, thought that they were always on the inside. They, were thought, they thought they were always safe. They thought that they, were, they, they had nothing to worry about. And yet throughout the Gospels, they're casting out, they're casting out God's people. And throughout the book of Acts, they're casting out the apostles. And yet we find as we turn to Revelation, they're actually the ones being cast out. They're the ones being left outside while the church is guarded and shielded. And this is supposed to take place, this trampling of the courtyard uh, under the foot of the Gentiles. This will happen for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. And it's the time period that comes up repeatedly in the Bible, 42 or three and a half years. There were three and a half years of drought in Elijah's day between the first time Elijah met with Ahab and the time where he has his showdown with the prophets of Baal. That's three and a half years. In, in Matthew's genealogy, 42 is a number that uh, there are 42 generations marking the time between promise and fulfillment from bondage to redemption. Jesus's own public ministry was about 42 months, three and a half years. And that time period comes up again and again, and it measure, it, it's measured by days in verse three. So 42 months divided into 30 days, 30-day uh, months, uh, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's the same time period, 42 months, three and a half, three and a half years. So 
We'll cover the ministry of the two witnesses next week and try to learn who they are. But for right now, just spend a minute. What, what time period is this talking about? This period comes up a few times. What period of 42 months is significant between Pentecost and AD 70? Well, there are a couple of them. Um, in 66 AD, the final Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire began. And in response, Nero sent General Vespasian to put down the rebellion. And 42 months later, in September of 70 AD, Jerusalem fell to the Romans. That's a, that's a three and a half year period. That's 42 months. From the time of the rebellion to the fall of Jerusalem is 42 months. There was another, there was another period, uh, the period of persecution in Rome. Nero accused the Christians of starting the fire that burned down most of Rome. And that persecution went on for three and a half years until Nero died. So there are a couple of 42s that overlap each other, a couple of three and a half years. This could be a reference to one of those, or both, or it could be a symbolic period of time referencing the effects of judgment and persecution. We're going to spend some more time on this next week, but I'm just platforming and introducing it now. But if we just take this even as symbolic, we see that the effects and the time of judgment and persecution are always limited and always marked. There is a beginning and there is an end. Things don't just ramble on forever and ever and ever. There is always an end. Everything in the Bible, everything that God does is measured. And he tells John to measure. So putting this all together, the focus here and the message and the thrust of this vision of John being given a measuring rod to measure out the temple, is, is, is the theme of measurement and measuring in the scriptures. Measuring in the Bible is a symbolic action to mark boundaries and to make distinctions between the holy and the profane, to divide what is to be protected from what is to be destroyed. When Belshazzar at his great feast sees the writing on the wall, what does it say? You have been found wanting. You've been weighed in the balances and, and, and have been found wanting. You've been measured. You've been weighed. Uh, the, the theme of measurement in the scripture shows us there are, there are holy things that have to be set apart and guarded to be fenced off behind walls and gates. And there's that which is outside, which is left to be trampled. In order for us to measure in this way, it requires perception and seeing clearly and thinking clearly, and for us to make critical judgments about what is on the inside and what is on the outside. All of this was the duty of the priests under the old covenant. Where is the boundary between the clean and the unclean? Where is the boundary between the lawful and the profane? Where is the boundary between the sacred and the corrupt? And, and, and has this boundary been kept or has that boundary been transgressed? Priests had to make all of these separations and all of these distinctions in order for pure and holy and good things to be preserved and protected. When we studied the Ten Commandments several weeks ago, when we got to the Tenth Commandment, which prohibits coveting, we spent a lot of time on boundaries and jurisdictions. God's law sets territorial boundaries. God's law grants spheres of authority, and he commands us to respect those bounds and to stay within them. Your property is your property, or else there's no such thing as stealing. If, if I have no property, then there's no such thing as theft, but God forbids theft, and so that means my property is my property. 
Your wife is your wife. Your husband is yours. Your children are yours under God. All of this under God. Your body is yours. Your house and everything in it under God. Everything that has to do with your life is yours. And in a just and lawful society, the ability of the magistrate or any other authority to tell you what you must do with your things is extremely limited. His power is limited to tell you what you must do and uh, how you must use it. So we exercise a holy, protective jealousy over what, it ours, what is ours. We put up walls and gates and doors. And, and we may choose to share various aspects of our lives and property. And under God, God requires tithes of our time and money. But I cannot of my own accord as a man make capricious demands of you. Nor if I'm loving, can I get somebody else to do it. Biblical societies erect landmarks and boundaries and enforce them and protect them. We make distinctions. This is over here, that's over here. This belongs to you, that belongs to me. This is sacred, this is profane. Here again, in Revelation 11, we have more instruction on boundaries. Jesus has given John his word, as we saw last week, so that John can roar like Jesus roars, so that he can breathe fire like the gospel army breathes fire at the first part of the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet, which we're still in the middle of, is all about the power and the authority of the word of God and what happens when the gospel goes out, when it's preached. And now in that context, John is given a measuring stick, another symbol of God's word, he's given a measuring stick to mark out the boundaries of the temple, the altar, and significantly those who worship there. The people are the temple. Um, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? There he's speaking collectively. It's plural. It's second person plural. You all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And later in 1 Corinthians 6, he uses it in an individual sense. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's both one and many, individually and collectively. You are the temple and you are measured out by this measuring rod. The instrument of measuring out the living temple of God, the instrument that marks the boundary between the church and the world is the proclamation of the word of God. This is what the sixth trumpet is all about, is about the proclamation of the word of God. The preaching of the gospel seals and separates and measures out the church. And the more that the word goes out, the more measuring and the more weighing takes place. The word is opened and proclaimed. And if it is read and taught faithfully, you and I are weighed in the balances. We see what is lacking. We see what is found wanting. We see where there is weakness in us. And we cry out to God for forgiveness and for strength and for him to fill up what is lacking. We measure ourselves against this yardstick, this plumb line, this carpenter square. And we see, oh my goodness, I'm so out of line. I'm so out of shape. I don't fit this template. I'm out of square. I'm crooked. I'm bent. I'm weak. I'm lacking. And then in submission and humility, 
we, we conform and we're strengthened and there are things to tear out and rebuild and there are things to start over on. There's things to go back and, and, and try to fix and we conform to the standard, to the measuring stick. The word of God also pushes away those who don't want to do that. So you hear God's word and you're convicted and you're cut to the heart and you're conformed. There are those also who don't want to be conformed. And so it has this dividing, just as John is to divide out the sanctuary from everything outside of it. The word pushes away and pushes to the side those who want to uh, go their own way, who don't want to repent, who don't want to obey God. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. The proclamation of God's word has this effect always. It always does something. It always is pulling you in or pushing you out. You're either getting pulled closer and drawing in and you're being marked and designated as being inside the sanctuary or you're spinning off on your own and you're being pushed further and further away by the preaching. The instrument of division is the word. That is what divides and that's what separates. The more Bible you get out into the world, the more it is read, the more it is preached, the more it is proclaimed, the more it is sung. By the way, thank you for heartily singing a huge section of scripture. That's a long psalm. I think it's going to take us three weeks to sing that psalm. And you sung it. You sang God's word. You put it out. And the more it is sung, and the more it is proclaimed, and the more it is preached, and the more it's roared, and the more that it is shouted, the more clear the difference becomes between the wheat and the tares. And that's what John is being called to do here. John is being called to be filled with the word, eat the word, and then mark out the boundaries and if you are to find instruction, if we're to find instruction and encouragement and hope in this book, it stands to reason that a component of our ministry in the world as the church is to do the same, to use the measuring stick to mark out and make distinctions. If the truth is hard to find in the world, and if things are muddled, and if people around us are going after lies wholesale, it's because the word is not being sent out to make distinction between the sacred and the profane, truth and falsehood. If the church looks just like the world in all the areas where it counts, it means that those who have been given the read aren't measuring straight or they aren't using it to measure at all. They're using some other measurement. They're using some other tool. Paganism, human philosophy, the cult of emotionalism, fake science, Identity politics, that's what they're using to measure. Those, those aren't our measuring sticks. <laughs> they, they don't work. They can't help. And, and they can't do anything effectively. And the reason that the church can't speak with a clear voice to our society, and the reason we have such murky positions on marriage and human sexuality and abortion and economics and law and justice, the reason we have such muddled positions on those is because we haven't been clearly measured ourselves. We haven't been conformed to this, to this standard and we aren't using it to measure. We haven't breathed out God's word in a clear way. So the confusion of the world is just an extension of the confusion of the church. How do we expect the world to fall in line with God's measuring stick when we haven't applied it to ourselves? How can anyone in the world know the difference between a marriage and a monstrosity if the church doesn't know the difference between the two? 
if the church isn't speaking to that with force and clarity? How can the world know the difference between a man and a woman if the church doesn't know the difference between a man and a woman? How can the church know, how, how can the world know, how can the world know how to live boldly with confidence and festivity in the face of fear if the church capitulates to all the world's anxieties? If there's no one measuring off truth and beauty and goodness and saying, this is what it looks like and this is what it is, and separating it from the counterfeits and the pollution and the corruption and calling it that and naming it and saying clearly, that's corrupt, that's profane, that's unholy, that's going to kill you, that is going to destroy and rot out our culture. If there's no one calling it that, who's going to know what's what? And that's my goal on the Lord's Day, partly, partly to encourage you, partly to instruct you, partly to give you hope, but also to speak clearly to these things so that you and your children hear someone doing that, so that there's somebody in your life, there's some voice who's calling sin, sin, and calling good things holy. So you will hear that and your children will hear that so that you will be bold in the time where you're given the opportunity to do the same. We are called with John to speak with the sharp straightness of God's measuring rod. But we can only do that after we have been measured ourselves. It is the temple people who are measured out here. The people are measured by the book. And by the way, the book is not measured by the people. We don't come to God's word as critics or skeptics. We don't come here deciding what to believe and what not to believe. We don't toss out the ugly parts and the parts we don't like and the parts we don't think are credible and the parts we don't think are helpful or the ones we find embarrassing. The word measures us, we don't measure it. So practically, what does it mean to be measured? It means to never be satisfied holding on to an idea, a position, an opinion, unless you have examined it critically by what God has said and done in history. Ideas have consequences. And corrupt presuppositions and false beliefs inevitably lead to disordered lives. You can't hold a mess of a philosophy and contradictory thoughts in your head and lead an orderly life. It's, it's impossible. You can't hold Darwinism in your mind and it never come out in the way you speak or live. That's impossible. You can't hold to an economic theory of, of Marxism or intersectional, uh, inter, intersectional feminism and that not profoundly change how you live. So test every position. Take every thought captive. God gives precise measurements. The world uh, has, has, has to conform to the word and the word has sharp edges and corners and it makes divisions. So humble yourself and when you find yourself out of line, Change your mind. Repent of your foolishness. I have to do that all the time. I've got this terrible thing where I've saved every single manuscript of every single sermon going back to the early 90s. And occasionally I'll say, oh, well, I think I've, I think I've done something on that passage before. Let me go back and let me see what I said back then, back in the 90s, or back in the early 2000s. And I die inside. I think, <laughs> ah, I said that. I found something I said five years ago that I said, oh, no. I can't believe I said that. God, forgive me. God, please forgive me. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Well, it's, we're constantly being reformed. And if you're not changing your mind, if you're not growing, then, then you're not measuring yourself by this, by this stick. 
Be measured, be straightened out, and don't ever stop that process. And if you're doing that faithfully, you'll have way more hope in the world. Here's a good idea. Try reading First and Second Kings every morning before you even open Twitter. Before you even look at the news, read some of First and Second Kings, and you'll have an entirely different perspective on what's going on in the world. And those of you who know those books well know exactly what I'm talking about. The world changes all the time. There's all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of evil and all kinds of wicked men who always get judged, who always get what's coming to them. And then as faithful men and women, it's your calling to take up the measuring rod and speak with precision and clarity and measure out the boundaries of the temple. Mark out the church and distinguish it from the world. Don't ever concede falsehood. Don't ever nod your head to lies. Don't participate in the works of darkness. Don't ever blur the lines between the Christian faith and idols. Do not be intimidated into silence by wicked men. This will put you in positions of conflict where you may start to doubt yourself and you may wonder, maybe I'm being divisive. Maybe I'm being contentious. Maybe I should just get along. Because most Christians have a default setting of peace. We want unity. We don't want to upset anyone. We don't want division of any kind. We think Mr. Rogers is the prototype of Christian masculinity. We have mistakenly replaced meekness and kindness and friendship with something called niceness. And niceness is not what we are called to. Niceness is a bland wallpaper that covers up things we don't want to deal with or covers up things we don't want to face. Niceness isn't anywhere in the Bible. Kindness is. God's kindness is a component of his covenant mercies. His, his loving kindness is his hesed. That's the Hebrew word. It's his fervent, passionate, resolute commitment to his own covenant, which has boundaries. His covenant has conditions. God is not nice, but he is kind. Well, there's a personality who hears something like this, though. They get drunk on their own discernment. They go into full schismatic mode and they start attacking the faithful. They think, well, uh, I'm being encouraged to be more bold, and so maybe I should just attack the faithful and be real divisive and schismatic and contentious. Uh, that divisive man is not a problem because he's making discernments. He's a problem because he's drawing lines and making separations in all the wrong places. In fact, he fails at discernment because he's dividing things that God has put together. He doesn't know where the battle lines are. He wants to fight, but he attacks non-combatants he attacks the faithful, he attacks the saints, he attacks his friends, either because he's too scared to go against the enemy or he loves fighting more than righteousness and he doesn't know when to stop. Only if you have been measured and humbled yourself do you know where the lines are so you can make right distinctions and right measurements and right declarations. So reject niceness, reject contentiousness, but remember that Jesus brings a sword that divides and cuts where necessary. Jesus says, do not think that I come to bring, a, bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He brings a sword, and the sword that divides is the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which pierces and it divides, according to Hebrews 4.12. Let that be the only thing that divides. Let that be the only measuring stick. And don't be ashamed and don't be afraid of its effects. Let God's word mark out the boundaries of your life and the measurements of your house. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word again, and we thank you that you have 
called your people and have given them your spirit so that they might be measured and measure, that we might make distinctions and see clearly between the things which please you and the things which don't. So Father, encourage us more and more to submission to you and conformity to the image of Christ and separation from everything that destroys and causes disorder. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.